When Nick Ripken wants to evangelize in dangerous places around the world, he doesn't come in as an expert ready to lead the few Christians who are there. Instead, he comes as a student ready to learn. We can't change being sheep among wolves, but we don't have to be stupid sheep. We went to the sheep that were wise, sitting at their feet, humbly, as a Westerner. They very seldom experienced that. And them being the Paul and us being the Timothys, and to know that we were going to use what they had learned in persecution to strengthen other parts of the body of Christ, they would look at us in joy and sobbing and saying, then our persecution is worth it. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and I have the privilege today, we're actually recording in Nashville, Tennessee at the National Religious Broadcasters Conference. Uh, we're going to be talking with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Nick is the author of a book called The Insanity of God. Uh, it is also a film that is coming soon, and we'll talk a little more about that as time goes on. Uh, Nick and Ruth, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. The Voice of the Martyrs have been great partners with us for years, and so, uh, like Ruth said, we're just privileged to be with you. Well, we are very thankful that you could take the time and talk with us. Uh, I watched the film version, The Insanity of God, just within the last two days, and uh, was just blown away. So I want to I want to dive in a little bit to some parts of your story. Um, and, and we'll skip over some too. So, so I want to let the listener know you need to read the book, you need to watch the film so that you can fill in the gaps. But I want to pull out some parts of the story. One part that stuck out to me was, uh, you know, you experienced a call to missions. You went to the country of Malawi. You had really good ministry there, felt really good about it. And then sickness came and you had to leave. How did, how did you feel about that? Did you feel like, wait a minute, Lord, we're here doing your work. Why are you kicking us out? Why are you making us go? I think as a, as a young girl, I had always felt called to missions. And in my mind, what missionaries do, how you live, was you went to one place, you stayed there your whole life, and you ministered, and you let God do the work through you and with you. And so my, my whole mindset was, we're going to Malawi, we'll be there forever. And when we got so sick, I, I couldn't bring those two realities together when the doctor said, you can't stay in this location, you have to get out. And so there were some tough times, um, hard, hard decisions. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table just talking to God saying, I don't understand this. We've fallen in love with these people. We want to stay here. Um, why can't we just be healed and stay. But God needed us to see that part of the world so that we would be prepared when we saw the next chapter of the, of the world. And, and my response is quite different. Uh, we're both PKs. She's a pastor's kid and I'm a pagan kid. So our way of processing those kinds of things, our filters are very different. So I didn't come to Christ until I was 18. So I remember reading Matthew 28 and Jesus said, go. And I thought, awesome. 
And then I read Acts 1, and it says go and go this way. And I thought this would be tremendous to get out of rural Kentucky. And so when I ran into uh, this church thing called a call, it confused me so much to uh, when I was interviewed to go overseas, they asked me to tell them their call of missions. Now, they loved what Ruth said, and I said, well, I read Matthew 28 and Acts 1, 6 and following, and uh, they gave me all kinds of sermons on a call to salvation and a call to ministry and a call to missions and a call to a specific place. And then they asked me, uh, Nick, what do you think about that? And I said, I, I think you all have, re have created a, a call uh, to missions that allows you to be disobedient to what Jesus has already commanded you to do. Uh, that went over really big. But I, 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 I had from the beginning wanted to go to Africa because I didn't know anything else. And, and I, I really was filtering things through uh, Ruth's life. Uh, I didn't have any other filter. Uh, but when the, the Irish Catholic doctor came in and said, Nick, uh, do, do you want to see Jesus? Well, I know the right answer. I've been to seminary. And I said, of course I want to see him. And he said, if you don't get out of here, you're going to see him in a couple weeks. Uh, Ruth and I had had malaria at least 10 times in four months. Our boys had it at least five times. We were all of us in the hospital together. Uh, there was times that Ruth didn't think I was going to come home from the hospital. And so our mission at that time, they gave us two weeks to get out, gave us a choice. You can go back to America or go to South Africa where there was no known malaria at that time. And we felt like our call was to lost people, was to be overseas. And so that was not a hard decision. And we packed up, moved to a, a black homeland at that time in the midst of apartheid. Uh, on the eastern cape of South Africa with a very sick wife and two sick boys and it took us about a year to get well and then we had seven wonderful years of ministry there. I, I just led my family to say, hey, our, our, if we have a call, it's to lost people. And, and a call is to a certain place for a season of life. Uh, we don't get to decide whether we go. We just we get to negotiate with God where we go for a season of life. Now, when we got to South Africa, where they'd had missionaries for almost 250, 300 years in some places, and uh, basically we were swamped in apartheid, and God was using that to just burn the racism that's, that was inherent in my soul and the way I was raised, because I had to get rid of that. But, you know, they, they wrote articles about us in Malawi, because hundreds of people being baptized and, and almost hundreds of churches started and then when we went down to a place where sort of a burnt over district where missionaries had been for a hundred years and there wasn't such a response they didn't write any more articles about us and and I, I my self-image took a hit and and so I had my argument with God at that point and basically the Holy Spirit said here's what I want you to learn if you don't take credit for the responsive places like Malawi you don't have to take the blame for unresponsive places like you've got now and you haven't begun to see anything yet because this was about the time Ruth and I started reading the book of Acts together again asking God would you define that non-biblical term missionary so we can know where we're supposed to go and what we're supposed to do and that was the preface for us landing in Kenya uh, the bang on the door of Somalia. I wonder, and you mentioned that experience was a preparation, uh, and I wonder if you 
unearth that a little bit? Because I think of uh, the people that you've interviewed and met with since then who've been persecuted. Maybe they had that same, hey, you've got two weeks, get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of people in Mosul today experiencing that very thing. Hey, we're taking over. you got to leave. Talk a little bit about what that prepared you for and how you've seen God over the years take that and say, hey, remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting you ready for this. I think one of the things that Nick and I've learned as we've gone among believers in persecution is that no part of the body of Christ has it all figured out. And it takes all the body of Christ to celebrate and be victorious. So as we saw great fruit and harvest in Malawi, we saw um, in South Africa a, a church that was there, but it wasn't growing. So God needed us to see different parts of the body so that when we were with believers in persecution, we can say, here's what's happening in this part of the world, and here's what's happening in this part of the world, and they can celebrate. Um, I mean, how many times have we been telling uh, a, a group of believers who are very persecuted about a really great church planning activity happening in another part of the world? And instead of them being jealous or feeling left out, they begin to celebrate because they've really grasped grasp what it is to be the body of Christ, that we're not a part of the body that's persecuted and a part over here that's in freedom. We're just the body of Christ. We can always be victorious and always be feeling the pain of persecution at the same time. Let's talk about the the Insanity of God project, and it, it really grew out of a personal loss and a personal tragedy. Uh, talk a little bit about that, how how that happened and how that launched you on this pathway. Um, we had been uh, living in Nairobi, Kenya and ministering into Somalia. We had felt the attacks of Satan as he um, took believers that we loved inside of the borders of Somalia and, and martyred them for their faith. And... Um, I can remember at the end of the year, Nick and I were sitting and talking and we said, you know, Satan has attacked us in every area of our life, um, except through our family. And we feel like right now, that's just gonna be a really, really hard part of the way he's gonna come after us. And on Easter Sunday morning in 1997, our middle son, who had just turned 16, Uh, woke in the middle of the night with a horrible asthma attack. It's that sound that a mother dreads to hear uh, as he came down the hallway, that breathing that is so, every, every sound of it is just agonizing. And Nick put him in the vehicle and rushed him to the hospital and on the way he, 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 he died really. And by the time Nick got him to the hospital, he could not be revived. Um, We, sat as a couple and really struggled with what does this mean for our family? Uh, Does this mean that we are going to um, need to go back to the States? But we were already planning to go back to the States, but does this mean we don't come back? Um, Are we willing to um, put the lives of our other two boys on the line and, and stay in the ministry that we are dealing with? God showed himself so faithful during those times. And um, the body of Christ surrounded us, loved us, cared for us, and took us on on just an amazing journey when we couldn't carry ourselves. And so I think that's kind of what launched us into what we do now, um, because God needed us to be totally 
just with our hands wide open and say, here we are. Were there some days during that time where you doubted God, where you struggled even to hang on to the idea that, okay, there is a God and, and he loves us. If he loves us, how could our son die? What? I, I probably would say no at that point. I think, uh, again, understanding God at the deeper levels uh, doesn't make it easier because uh, I had already come through Somalia so much where I, I we were there six months before we before we ever met a woman that had not been repeatedly raped so when I come in and out of Somalia sometimes Ruth comes in and out we don't go together because it's too dangerous and kids not going to lose both parents at the same time if we can if, if that's our that you know our choice and God gave us that choice but I, I ask uh, early on in those Somali years, not why me, God, but why not me? Because I, I grew up so rough, I never had anything gentle like my wife and loving like my kids. But it, it felt like it was my turn. But it also felt like it wasn't enough for Satan to run us out of Somalia. He had to crush our hearts so we wouldn't start again. I, I get to the hospital. I'd done CPR on my son. and. Uh, he lived for about an hour after we got to the hospital in time for Ruth and our oldest son to get there, leaving our 11-year-old to sleep at home. And for one of my best friends to get there, I called him that worked with us in Somalia. And, and, but the next morning, waking up that son was a hard, hard time. But uh, Ruth and I had already talked and prayed, and we said to the boys, uh, same thing that we'd said often in Somalia, uh, we can't change this. We would never... We had, we had never premeditatively chosen for our son to die like God did. See, that, that's, that's where I could not understand is how God can do this stuff so premeditatively and send his son to die. And when his son screams out, save me, Dad, get me off of this. Why have you forsaken me? And he can get him off that cross and he doesn't. That's, that's why we have a book and a documentary called The Insanity of God because Anybody that professes to understand that kind of love, uh, I think, is blowing smoke. And, and so um, I, I felt like and led our family to say, we can't change this, but we're not going to waste this. And, and so how can we bless God even through the death of our son? And four years prior to that, we had been asked to begin developing discipleship materials for believers and folks like us that work in persecution. So after our son's death and some recuperation, we revisited that. And so we began traveling among believers in persecution. Ruth would have told you, we're doing this to developing resources. I'm doing this because I don't know if, if Jesus is trustworthy anymore. Because I couldn't say in Somalia, it'd be a lie to say. Uh, I knew it intellectually. Probably knew it spiritually, but if I can't be honest with God, who can I be honest with? Uh, and if I had said, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, when they killed four of my best friends on one day in Mogadishu, uh, just because they believed in Jesus, uh, can I say that in a place where there was 150 believers when we went to that country and when we got kicked out, there's only four left alive? How could I pray that and say that? So Somali believers are dead. Our son is dead. Our dreams are dead. And we want to know, is Jesus for the tough places? 
like where you guys report on, or is Jesus just for the dressed up Western church? And so where do we go to find the answers? We've already done the seminary. We've done the, the denominational schools. So we just decided to go to believers in persecution and really sit at their feet, humbled and broken, and ask them to teach us how do they make Christ known in hard places? How do they do more than survive, oftentimes thrive in persecution? And that led to the journey to where we're sitting together today. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. Nick is the author of The Insanity of God. Uh, I know because we do kind of the same thing, go and talk to persecuted Christians. And one of the challenges, and I wonder how you dealt with this early on, is when you ask in many of these countries about persecution, they're like, well, why would you want, that's just normal. Why, you know, it's not anything special. I don't have anything to share with you because it's just, I'm just normal. Uh, how did you, how did you approach them to say, no, I want to hear your story. It's, it's, it's inspiring to me. It's not normal where I come from. How, how did they respond to that idea that this guy wants to talk about persecution? Why? One of the first responses were, how did you find us? You know, how did you know about us? And when we told them that we had, we had special days, we prayed for them, and, and as much as we could, we prayed as specifically as we could find out, and they would just sit there and weep because that, to know that they're prayed for not forgotten is one of the ways that they live out the resurrection. Now, almost every believer in Somalia that was killed had a relationship with a Westerner that precipitated the timing of their death. Some of these who were killed had been believers for 30 years some for 20, some for 10. Now, why are they getting killed in significant numbers now uh, when they've lived at peace with their neighbors? Well, of course, Somalia's in civil war. Of course, a radical Islam is rising up, but there was a flood of Westerners, many of them short-term, without language, without culture, uh, and, and this is something the church needs to talk about. As we follow the crisis of the week, whatever's on secular media tends to set the agenda for the church. And so we had a, a flood of short-term godly men and women that came in there. But oftentimes uh, what we watched is uh, believers were killed for who they worked for. And I would hear Muslims saying, Somali traders have access to millions of dollars, if we kill them, we'll get their jobs, then we'll get that money. I watched believers killed in Somalia for worshiping with Westerners. When uh, I, you know, I watched them. When, when someone gave them a 10-pound Somali Bible that they couldn't read, and if they could read it, they couldn't hide it or handle it carefully, when they were caught with that Bible, they were killed. Not only that, I watched Muslims who were illiterate, by the score, be given Bibles from short-term outsiders. And, you know, most of our listeners would think, hey, given Somalis, Somali.Bibles has got to be a good thing. Well, uh, I, I watched Muslims who couldn't read walk down the street with this beautiful book that they were given, and a fundamentalist see them, put a bullet in their head, and send them into eternity without Jesus because someone inappropriately you know, not wisely, uh, gave them the Bible. And 100% of Somalis who were paid to evangelize their own people using Western forms of evangelization, all of those were killed. And so uh, what I learned was 
When you are killed for who Jesus is, magnificent things happen. If you are killed for who Nick is, what you learn from that experience is, don't do that anymore. And so it was like a double crucifixion in Somalia was that not only were believers killed, but they were killed for a reason less than sharing Christ with their neighbors. And the church should fall on their faith and say, you know, uh, if we are in Christ, we're a partner with him. We don't get to decide that, but we can decide whether we're a good or bad partner. Yeah, and what we did was, as we met with believers, we shared with them our mistakes, as Nick said. We shared with them the things that had happened, and we asked them, please teach us. Those of us from the West, we don't know how to be wise partners with you. Teach us. And as We can't change being sheep among wolves, but we don't have to be stupid sheep. That's right. <laughs> and so we went to the sheep that were wise. They are still gentle and they're broken, and they're crucified, but they're also resurrected. And sitting at their feet, humbly, as a Westerner, they very seldom experienced that, and them being the Paul, and us being the Timothys, uh, that also was encouraging to them, and to know that we were gonna use what they had learned in persecution to strengthen other parts of the body of Christ, they would look at us in joy and sobbing and saying, then our persecution is worth it. One of the things, and I think you've touched on it, is just this idea that, that people elsewhere are suffering. I think one of the lies Satan uses in persecution is you're all by yourself. Nobody else knows, nobody else cares. You're all alone, you might as well give up. When you go in to China and talk about Christians in Somalia, when you go in one country and share, hey, this is happening all around the world, I think that is such an encouragement. And we've experienced that too. When you say, wait, you're not alone. <laughs> in fact, there's a broad body of Christ that is with you. Uh, like you say, they respond with joy and excitement. How hard was it for them to adjust to the idea that here's this Westerner to come to learn from us? Because that is so uncommon in, in most of these countries. If a Westerner comes, you know, he's the speaker, he's the teacher. Uh, how how big of an adjustment was that for the Christians that you met with to say, wait a minute, this guy wants to learn from us? It was not near as a big adjustment for them as it was for me <laughs> to become humble enough. I sat and listened to people for hours and days, and those who really know their faith in the context of their culture and maybe even world events, I want to sit with those folks for two or three days. That's the Apostle Paul. That's a Simon Peter, that, that's an Elijah. And, and one of the groups I asked, I went five places in one Muslim country with believers that were old, young, men, women, educated, oral communicators, rural, urban, and I asked them what makes a good worker from the West. They would look at each other like, we can't tell him the truth, he can't take it. When they've told me about being beaten and martyred and jailed, and everywhere I went for five places, Every group I went to told me the same Westerner's name, and I'd say, what makes him such a good worker? And they'd say, oh, we don't know, but we love him. And the fifth place, I'm so aggravated on what makes a good person from the West, I, I said to them like, a, like I was a sulking redneck from rural Kentucky, I'm not leaving till you tell me what I need to learn from you. And they leaned across the table and got in my face and say, uh, we'll tell you why we love him. He, he borrows money from us. And I thought, 
My goodness, I can do this everywhere I go. And I said, what do you mean about that? And they said quickly, when his daddy died, he didn't go to the Westerners. He came to us and us Muslim background believers, poor, scattered alone, uh, we took up a love offering and bought him a plane ticket for him to go home and bury his daddy. And when he had given all of his money to refugees and his family didn't have enough money to pay bills on time or school fees on time, we, not the Westerners, loaned him money to, to catch up. And you want to know why we love him? And then they looked at me and they sliced my heart into pieces. They said, he needs us. The rest of you never needed us. And I wept like a baby. And I remembered the words of the Apostle Paul that says, uh, yes, you received the gospel from me, but for every one thing I gave you, I got four things in return. And Westerners can't say that because we're so arrogant. We think, oh, we need to pity these believers in persecution when they're the ones that Jesus honors by allowing them to suffer for him. We've talked about the book. We've talked about the film, The Insanity of God. What do you hope these are accomplishing? Uh, what do you hope people who read the book or watch the film, what do you want them to do in response? We had a 90-year-old a man uh, read Insanity of God, and he wrote us an email, and he said, I've realized that I have not done what God asked me to do my whole life. He says, I am not going to let one more day of my life pass without me sharing Jesus with somebody. And every day, he makes sure he tells about Jesus to someone that he meets. I, I think that's the whole, the whole thing. Believers in persecution, they, they are being persecuted because they are witnessing. They are sharing Jesus with other people. And um, if we grasp what that means, um, I cannot imagine what will happen across America and across the world as we witness and as we live out our faith. And so we're connecting the body of Christ with the body of Christ and just seeing that uh, now, as I could not do in Somalia, I can now shout from the rooftops, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world because I've seen, we've seen what God is doing globally. We've been listening to a conversation I recorded on the road with Nick and Ruth Ripkin. They're the authors of a book and now a film called The Insanity of God. They've been challenging us to live a life of obedience to whatever God calls us to do. I hope the stories that you hear every week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio encourage you to be quick to say yes to whatever adventures God may have for you. If you'd like to take another step in exploring how you could get involved in spreading God's word around the world, as well as fellowshipping with our persecuted family, I want to encourage you to attend a Voice of the Martyrs Advance Conference. This is an, an all-day Saturday event where you will hear firsthand from believers who have suffered persecution for their faith in Christ. You'll also hear from VOM workers and others who are ministering on the front lines, spreading the gospel around the world in hostile and restricted nations. The next VOM Advance Conference is going to be April 9th in Wichita, Kansas, and I'm actually going to be one of the speakers at that conference. So I would love to see you there. I hope you can join us if you live in that area. 
but there's probably a conference that's close to you this year on the schedule. If you'll go to www.vomevents.com, you can find the conference that's going to be closest to you. You can register for free to attend the conference. Your faith will be strengthened and challenged as you spend a day uh, hearing the stories of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world and fellowshipping with other Christians from your area that also care about persecuted Christians. Next week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio, we're going to hear from Sister Amber. She has served for many years in the nation of Tibet, and we're going to hear how God sustained her during some very intense persecution. So I hope you'll come back and join us to hear Sister Amber and her story next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. <music>